Aisha Elaine Anderson, Triptych. When unbalanced and falling, exhausted by my calling, resistant to my mission with rough gentle hands extended, they were gifted as they lifted this quick-witted little whiz kid when away the world tossed me. They effortlessly caught me brought me into a new norm. They taught me my function and form. They got me how to keep a clean home, not to be lonely when I'm alone, to be patient and plan how upon my own too I can stand sans marriage or a man to cultivate my own land, provide for my babies, elder lovers whose eight rock made me, mind my mothers, they brought me up safely. And when the noonday sun seemed to hate me, they were my shade tree they gave me bravery, influenced who I'd grow to be, put me onto this poetry, these black women, they raised me. I met this girl when I was seven years old. And what I loved most was that she made me feel whole. Bravado meets flow, flow meets beat, beat meets words, words meet me. She unlocked the light and my hard knock life, said I was invincible, made me feel less miserable, indulged all my whimsical, even when she was being nonsensical. Da ha, da ha, da ha 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 ha, ha. Fast forward several years, me and my naughty headed peers, we absorbed the source, hung out in black bookstores, little walking thesauruses, we knew every Nas verse and chorus while burning through, relearning the truth. It was pleasantly unsettling, all the homies egging me, telling me, then begging me, yo, go read Stolen Legacy. And the thing that was cool was KRS-One had said it too. A knowledge seeker bumping poor righteous teachers. I was a keeper of the flame, head wrapping no chain, backpacking in ashe, peace to the gods, brand newbie, and I banged the original gang gang. I'm talking about Wu-Tang, a conscious little purist. It kept me well-nourished, a Lazarus turned Buddhist. It gave rise to my newness, my very first awakening. It shaped me more greatly influence who I'd grow to be rhyme scheme this here poetry elevated and saved me this hip-hop it too raised me God's only true voice the sound of contemplation it ended my search helped me face my hurt devoured my traumas gave rest to my mind showed me my guides and how to read all the signs to see past what is present, to unmask my true essence, give reverence to the reckless and be grateful for their lessons. That my breath is a testament. In through the nostrils, down past the tonsils, an ancient gospel through me all things are possible. When asked in my name and my name, the I am, it taught me to take stands by taking a seat Right inside of left hand, half lotus my feet. Breathe and repeat, feel my love deep. A posture of ponder to conquer my monsters. Wander beyond words, conjure my honor. Ajna, Anahata, and all of my chakras, you cannot dissuade me. From knowing greatness embraces me. Light beams create me, that patiently waiting is a practice in praying. Influence who I'm growing to be, introducing to my new poetry. Dedication to simply being peace, because this meditation, it is raising me. So now, who raised you? The Blasian sensation is back. 
I'm Jalian Yang, Ja for short. I'll explain <laughs> later. Last season, I was going by Karen. It's still me. People change their names. It happens. I'm Treasure Shields Redmond. Same name, same mission to hold space for the voices that mainstream media ignores. Who Raised You podcast is back, baby. And better than ever. We're the 2018-2019 <laughs> startup competition winners for the Arts and Education Council of St. Louis. They gave us $10,000 and office space <laughs> to transform the Who Raised You podcast into the Who Raised You listening collective. This year, we're creating a digital audio archive to combat our region's historical amnesia. We're bringing together artists, poets, and changemakers of all kinds to record stories of ordinary wisdom. Stories by citizen sound agents. Coming yes. to a city near you. Stay tuned at whoraisedyoupodcast.com. In the meantime, enjoy season two of Who Raised You Podcast, a traveling conversation between Jalian Yang and Treasure Shields Redmond as we explore how culture, family, and intersecting identities pave our way toward liberation. We want to know, who raised you? Dig deep. We're finding our roots. Today, Who Raised You podcast goes to Eden Seminary, where I, Jalian Yang, earned a Master of Divinity. We were invited to host a live podcast at their 2018 Spring Convocation with the theme, Church at the Intersections of Race and Sexuality. Newly recovered from a car accident and missing a tooth, Ja facilitated a conversation between Eden Seminary alumni while I attended a celebration of Maya Angelou's 90th birthday party with my dad in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. This was her conversation. By choice or necessity, these guests have found themselves working outside of so-called traditional pastoral roles within the church as they pursue collective well-being and abundance. In this podcast, we are faced with the question, which way now? This way? That way? That way? Whether helping or troubling our experiences of theological education impact our answer to that crucial question. And we can't forget the pressing topic of today's spring convocation, church at the intersections of race and sexuality. Now, I've said a bunch, and I just want to remind you my pronouns are she and they, and I think what might be best is for all of you to introduce yourselves. Just say your name, your pronouns, and just a little something that you want everyone to know about you. And maybe how you're feeling about this spring convocation. Are you ready, Michael? I guess so, since you called on me first. <laughs> uh, I am um, Reverend Michael Addy, and um, I am a community organizer, and I recently moved uh, to a different organization in East St. Louis and the metro uh, south part of Illinois. Um, what else was I supposed to say? Your pronouns oh. and how you might be feeling about spring convocation. Okay, so um, my pronoun is he, they, it, whatever you want to call me, I'm fine with it. Um, <laughs> and um, I am feeling um, great about spring convocation, but I'm sitting in some tension. Yeah. Right? So that first session put me in a lot of tension. And tension is not a bad thing for me. It is an opportunity to move forward uh, to stress to push myself to move forward in this area of the intersection between race and sexuality. So, that's where I'm at. I'm with you on that tension. I could use the next massage right about now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Reverend Dr. Dietrich Wise Baker. Um, Wait, slower for everyone. Reverend Dr. Dietrich Wise Baker. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what am I supposed to do? Your pronouns a little bit that oh, you want them today. to um, I'm a lot of things, or I do a lot of things. Um, I'm an adjunct professor here at Eden. I'm the dean of the chapel for the spring here at Eden. So um, worship was fun for me this morning. Um, I'm an organizer. I'm a community organizer working on a Break the Pipeline campaign for a local group called Metropolitan Congregations United. So um, trying to make sure black youth aren't criminalized in St. Louis. Um, I also do organizing work for my denomination, uh, the National Benevolent Association. I'm a program coordinator for activism and advocacy, so I got some hats. I'm Amanda Teo, and um, I'm a student currently on break at uh, 
leave at the end. I'm a community organizer with Missouri Immigrant and Refugee Advocates, so I do a lot of organizing around the immigrant community, but also around the Latinx community. Um, this is Adriel, he's my newest little one. Hi, Adriel! <laughs> so, so cute. Yeah, so he might be a little fussy, and we're just up here eating. And <laughs> <laughs> Up. And so I'm glad we're able to make space for that right now. Um, something that I've been reflecting on is how the Christian tradition, or you know, Christian traditions, have a lot of contradictions. We just uh, heard about some of those when it comes to, you know, the rhetoric of love or what love actually looks like in practice. And other contradictions include the body and the spirit. In in some ways, people might say, you know, the body is awful and you need to really um, uphold the spirit instead. Um, and in other ways, the body is described as beautiful. So we get a lot of contradicting messages. Um, and at the same time, God is described with a body, made flesh, dwelling among us. So as you were or are formed in this tradition, I want to know how have your embodied experiences of race and sexuality impacted your calling? And that's such a huge question. So I'll, I'll pare that down first to the traditional question of this podcast, which is, who raised you? Because from that question, um, those answers inform what you might understand around race and sexuality and all of these contradictions that we wrestle with. So who raised you, Michael? Are you starting with me again? Okay. <laughs> you, know what? you know what? You're right. I'll start with Deidre. Are you ready? seminary, um, trying to find a place to be in the church, and I quickly kind of came up against sort of two obstacles, um, one being female, and um, I would say in the black church tradition, like trying to pastor, and it was kind of made clear like pretty quickly that that was pretty much not an option, <laughs> or at least I wasn't connected to um, a denomination at that time where that was an option. So it was like, my femaleness was definitely like an issue like right away um, and then I was you know kind of there was more space for me in sort of white denominations but it was clearly like not a black space um, not a space where black culture or music or spirituality was gonna be embraced or roommate for that in any significant way so right away I was kind of stuck in the you know sort of at that place and that's um, why I ended up um, planting a church, trying to create a space where both of those things could exist. And uh, that sort of queered me right away. Um, mm -hmm. And um, it drew um, a queer community to the church that um, ended up planting. So that's sort of like a little bit about how I was raised. Mm -hmm. I, I love that, the idea that you felt like there wasn't this space that you felt like you needed to, um, that needed to exist, and then you went forth and made that. That's beautiful. Um, Amanda, who raised you? Well, I was raised by my adopted parents, who are white, which played a pretty significant role when I was younger, because I was very brown, and I grew up in a white community. So it was like, very relevant all the time. Like, I was always being told, oh, you know, maybe you don't want to hang out in the sun so much because you're getting really dark, or don't you want to have light eyes, or don't you want to have light hair because that's prettier. And so those are all things that influenced um, how I saw myself, but also where I wanted to make space for myself. Um, so when I got older and I was able to be really unapologetic in who I was and be proud of who I was, then I was like, all right, I don't need to change myself to fit in here. You all are gonna need to change so that there's space for me. So that's kind of where, how I was raised at least. So again, that notion of making space coming up. How about you, Michael? So who raised me? Um, well, I kind of I kind of 
sit in this um, tension, and I think that part of the reason why this this uh, particular topic on con the convocation is so tenseful, has so much tension for me, is because when I think about my upbringing, I had very strong women in my family. Like my grandmother was the matriarch, and when Velma Jean Westbrook said, move. <laughs> like, you move, literally, you move. And my grandfather, though, was very um, kind of docile, right? So he wasn't really strong. But my uncles uh, and many of the men in my community were very, um, um, you know, it was this whole idea of a lot of misogyny, right? Uh, so I grew up with seeing both of these images before me, like these very strong black women, which I tend to navigate towards, very strong women with very strong personalities, like all of the women in my life are very strong personality women, like they tell you what they want. Uh, but I also have a lot of, you know, from college and friends who are very macho, very male. And so I kind of sit in this, and I kind of resonate with what Dietrich said, so I'm kind of in this like queer space, like in between um, that. And then when you look at me, I'm a, a big black guy, but I have this very high-pitched voice. And so sometimes, and so sometimes when I go through the driving line, they say, ma'am, is that all you want? Thank you, ma'am. And you know, and so I had to really like say, what does that mean for me to sit in this body with this voice and constantly have to deal with people hearing something that is totally different. When I get to the window, the person is like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I'm like, and then, you know, I just, you know, I have, it has really made me say, you know what, you're fine, I'm fine with it. So when you say, what is my pronoun? I'm like, whatever you want to, you know, I'm fine with it. I'm not getting ready to debate it. Um, but it has to be, you know, in this, this strange, this liminal space, right? Um, and it's taken me a while and through seminary and through work to really be able to live into that space that I am different, that my body says something different than my voice of where I was raised, so. And, and what I hear in what you're saying, Michael, and what you said, Amanda, is that the way that other people perceive you impacts your embodied experience and whether spaces are meant for you or not, or if they feel like spaces that you yeah. belong in. So I know I said that we would explore this question of which way now, but I'm almost wondering if a better question might be like, what, how do you make space? You know, because all of you describe yourselves as space makers. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. Because that's less of a, you know, do I go left or right or forward or back? And it's more a, you know, do you break it open? Are you shining some light? Are you pushing things aside? Are you going through things? Um, are you time traveling? Like, what, what's going on? <laughs> what is making space? What does that mean? Um, for me, it meant that I had to, um, I, I had to decide that I wasn't going to give up parts of myself. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. You know, when I'm when, with the black folks, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to bring, uh, you know, my differing theology or my queerness, or I'm not. I'm gonna leave that to the side, and then. When um, with white folks, I'll you know I'll sing the songs and you know you know <laughs> uh, I'll be there like, you know uh, and, on her hands you like, know oh my gosh. yeah <laughs> you know, so it was making a decision that um, I was gonna be be everything everywhere. Um, I would say that also opened up vocational paths, right? So, like, I know a lot of us, like, when you were in seminary, like, I, like, had an idea at some point, like, I was going to get, like, one job, and, like, that was sort of going to be, like, I was going to be, like, pastoring, and I was going to be it. And as I began to accept the depth, the, the multiplicity of who I am, the different gifts, the abilities to be all of who I am, that meant that there was lots of things I could do. At, give, at different times, and some things could be dormant, some could be active, in some places all three could be going, maybe one, you know, like, so it just opened up the which way, it, 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 I became surrounded by paths that I could take um, when I looked into the depth of um, who God made me to be and accepted that. Mm 
So it almost seems like there was a choice that you had to make because the environment around you was almost saying like, will you fracture yourself? Will you pick and choose? And you're like, no, mm -hmm. all of me. Mm -hmm. And that's a sacred decision, I say. Some trauma, 
mm-hmm. and then consider my own trauma and my own triggers in that same space. So that's a great uh, transition to uh, the question of how has your theological education helped or troubled uh, your ability to make space? <laughs> we, I, I see some head nods and head shaking, and then I see some like wide eyes. And those are all different answers. Hmm. If it all could be so simple. If it all could be so simple. I can return to not knowing. <laughs> or not having been. Uh, oh God. Um, I mean, I, I generally tell. I mean, I, I would say a generally painful story. It's better now. Um, in this space, but like my second year seminary, man. I mean, the first semester, you guys didn't have Brocky, most of you. <laughs> man, like, yeah, like, you were rich pages out the Bible and stuff like this, you know. It was just, that, it was it was rough. That first year or so was rough. And then I had dental class, and, and then I was really messed up. Like, <laughs> Take responsibility for what I want to be mine, um, which means I had to make some decisions about who I was going to be um, okay, as a pastor. So, for the listeners who don't know what that means, what is embedded theology? Oh, yeah. So, so, like, so like things like you know, like you know, like uh, like gay people are going to hell. You know, like that kind of thing that I was sort of taught and was embedded, and I had never questioned. All that got torn up here, you know, as I, you know, got got into relationships and started interrogating scriptures and texts and things that had always been told to me, me starting to ask questions about the songs I sung in worship, about the ways that people were preaching, and then I could start seeing what people were doing. Like, I could see what they were doing when they were preaching. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I don't know if that makes sense, but... Yeah. Yeah, then it started, then it started getting really bad, but... <laughs> So that's so my so my second year I left. I, I had to leave. I was getting ready to get ordained, and I could. They gave me the ordination vows, you know. Some of you, some of your traditions, they have like a list of stuff you have to say. And I was like, oh, I don't believe any of that. <laughs> I just was not there. I was like, Pastor, I I can't get before the people. Y'all gonna do all the stuff, and I don't believe. a people, um, a role, you know, safety, money, you know what I mean? Some economic security, you know, the church I came from wasn't broke, you know. Um, and so all of that, you know, you know, that was troubling. But um, on the other side, I mean, God has been extremely faithful. Um, and this is so much more fun. <laughs> um, but that, that, that doesn't mean that it's not a cost or it's not risky or that it's not hard. Um, but the depth of knowing people, um, having my own theologies challenged constantly, um, becoming a more vulnerable human being, um, seeing people um, more deeply, myself more deeply, it's been a good, it's been a good ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. <laughs> which way I wanted to go, and 
even when it came to that question about space, because a lot of it was imposter syndrome. So when I wanted to make space for myself here, my question was, do I have the right to make space for myself here if I don't have that theological background everybody else does? And how do I make space for myself within um, like a pastoral role when I don't, when I can't tell you anything really about the Bible? Like you can't, I can't um, cite scripture, I have no idea. So these are all um, made me question, it, it made it really difficult to question all, all of these different things. Like where do I belong? Where do I fit? Where do I fit here? Where do I fit outside of here? Because now I know all these things. <laughs> and I picked up all this stuff about theology. And so now I'm like, I got one foot in and I can't take it back. <laughs> so like, where do I, where do I fit into all of that? So, um, I think it has helped me a lot because I have shaped um, questions that I had been dealing with in my own head about about race and about what that means and how that fits within Christianity. Um, but also, it has been very troubling and, and difficult for me as well. Mm -hmm. uh, well, when I came to Eden Theological Seminary. <laughs> Uh, I came from a very um, conservative background, uh, Baptist, uh, also evangelical, um, and so I had kind of this bottomed out on, I knew when I chose Eaton, I knew what I was getting myself into, right? <laughs> well, to a certain extent, I knew. <laughs> I knew, you know, from reputation in my community, everybody was like, go to Covenant, don't go to Eaton, right? So you don't want to go to Eaton. And then I had a, a friend who went to one class here, and she came back. She's a minister. She came back, and she said, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And then I was like, well, everything ain't for everybody. Um, so um, what, broke, what broke me open was when I was, um, I grew up in a, a tradition that really focused on sin and hell, right? Like. I remember um, being like in the third grade and I went to Christian school and my Sunday school teacher was also my third, my, my third grade teacher and we were in Sunday school and I think I had came up for like the fourth time to get accept Jesus into my heart. <laughs> because I always, I could never feel like that assurance. Like it was always supposed to be, you get you know, once you accept it, you like know. It right, and I'm right. It didn't take. So, so I was like, well, I, I, I said a curse word on the playground, I gotta go back and, 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 and get Jesus in my heart again. And so, um, and then, coming to Eden, and so I've always been different. Like, I've always not been really settled in that my embedded theology, my doctrine, that doctrine, it has never really settled with me. So I knew Eden was the place that I needed to go to challenge those things to see if they really held water, like if there was some truth into everything that I've been taught. Uh, and I think what broke things open for me was the pastoral care. And... I've always been active in my community and with black folks because I've always, you know, at one point I was a Pan-Africanist also. And so it was something about, we were in a class on pastoral care for like marginalized communities. And Dr. Leslie uh, said, um, God did not create us to be oppressors or to be oppressed. And so what did that mean? that um, if you find yourself in a state and your belief oppresses others, you got to stop. You got to ask yourself, if what I'm believing is this God, if I'm holding somebody else back or condemning somebody else to hell, because they don't line up with my belief. Am I really doing God's work? And seminary broke that open for me. Uh, and then I have a nephew who I think is struggling with his sexuality. 
And I had to sit there. My family is very conservative. My mother, she, she don't play. She's still conservative. I love her. That's my mama. But I had to sit down with this kid, and I had to tell him, whoever you choose to love, whoever you choose to be in this world, God loves you. And so, um, that for me, knowing that God's love, that God's love is beyond, and I got in trouble with my church because I said, well, God's love is beyond this book. <laughs> because I come from, from a Baptist and evangelical, so you know, they don't play about the, 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 the validity of the Bible. Uh, but I had to see God as much more. Uh, Apophetic, right? That God is much more that we don't chip away to to say God is not, but we chip away to find out who God is, and that God is much more than what we have before us. This only points us to; it only gives you a glimpse of who God is. If I can know God from everything about God in this book, then God is not worth knowing for me. So. Much. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to transition into Q&A. Um, let's all take a breath in and out. And can we thank our guests in whatever way you So that graceful agitation is, yep, I've been you too, I understand, 
we still need to move, we still need to change, we still need to transform. So come on, let's do this together, but I'm not gonna stop calling you out, I'm not gonna stop calling myself out. Yeah, I think personally, I don't love graceful attitude. <laughs> Raise your hand if you do love graceful attitude. I love the uh, I love the idea of it, but I would just have to agitate because to be perfectly frank, like I don't have time trying to be graceful with myself, I'm trying to be graceful with my children, I'm trying to be graceful with my community, I'm trying to be graceful with my husband. Mm -hmm. And if I gotta be graceful with you too, then I don't know. Patience <laughs> is real thin at that point. So I have I. It doesn't get you anywhere when I'm just like agitating and agitating because then people shut down. They don't want to hear what I'm saying. And if I have to, you know, want to be real and I want to make a difference, I want people, just like you were saying, you know, people who really mean well and who really want to help the community. But if I really want them to, to really make the difference and to really start to understand their role and how sometimes it can be harmful, um, I have to. I have to be graceful, and I do have to remember that I also was in that place, and I also did things that that were harmful, and I still do things that are harmful, and that I have to always be reevaluating myself, and so um, I've had to take those roles on, whether I like it or not, <laughs> and be graceful. Yeah. First, let me just say that that. That term is my own term. <laughs> I don't, you know, I didn't know, I don't want to put anybody in it, but I appreciate what, what she was saying, what you were saying. Um, because um, in our organizing circle, they most definitely would not even talk about grace. So I just want to let you know that, that is my addition. Because I don't, because just like I don't do anything else like everybody else does it, I don't organize like everybody else does because I think that sometimes we got to always reimagine what the work is and what it looks like. And sometimes the old school organizers that I work with, they don't reimagine, they hardcore, they go hard, right? <laughs> um, so for me, I needed to add that. I needed to add that graceful agitation because we were just, I was just at a training in Tennessee and there was an older white man and he was in my session and he had been sitting in the cut. That's what I call sitting back, not participating, not being present. And I agitated him. I agitated the hell out of him. <laughs> right? This man stood up and almost flipped the table. He was like, yeah, you, you just think you're a bully, you blah, blah, blah. And uh, he was ready to come at, after me. And I was like, oh, there you are. <laughs> There's a white man in the room. <laughs> there you are. Um, but I also had to go, you know, and then, you know, people were like trying to hold him. And I was just sitting there walking like, whatever. Because I know if you come, we going you know, um, but um, I realized also that in that agitation that I had not made room for his trauma, right? So as I pursued him, I had to pursue myself. And I did not make room for his trauma. And then uh, in the, the next session, David Gerth, uh, who is uh, the direct, executive director for uh, uh, MCU, had the next session. And David took him to that place and said, what was all that about with you and Mike? And he said, when I was a kid, I got the shit kicked out of me. And so it triggered something in him. Mm -hmm. Right? So it, it caused me to reflect on my, my work as an organizer and how I sit in tension with this idea of agitation and pastoral care. Because sometimes people want you to take this hat off and put this hat on but it's not always that clear. And I think God calls us to live in the tension of who we are in whatever space. And so that's why I was like, I gotta do some graceful agitation at times. Where I give consideration to, even though I gotta agitate you, let me add some grace on it because it'll make it just a little bit more palatable for you and for me. And, and you have decisions to make in that moment about what labor you're going to accept in putting on that hat or taking off this other one, um, kind of like what Amanda was talking about, right. because there is that power dynamic that comes with that intersection of race 
and also gender yeah. in that moment. I think we have time for one more question. Yes. Well, I wonder about safety. And by safety, I don't necessarily mean physical safety. I'm talking emotional, spiritual safety in these spaces where you're showing up at numerous intersections. Wondering what sorts of boundaries you're okay keeping, which ones you're willing to kind of let flow, how you make those decisions. Um, keeping in mind that term, safety. Yeah, um, Lauren's here, and Bertini's mom's here. Um, me, Lauren, and uh, Lauren Buck, Bertini Gray, and myself, we, um, we uh, create a space together called Liwa uh, Farbale, it means beautiful freedom. Um, and that space is a space just for women of color. So just women, and just women of color. Um, and so to your point of safety, um, I guess people could see it as exclusive, but hopefully people kind of get the point of why we would need to create a space where women of color in particular um, have that um, they can feel safe to be vulnerable um, uh, and to share the delicacies of those intersections um, that you can imagine, you know, there's lots of trauma, there's lots of stories, there's lots of things that come up in that space. Um, and so we've, we've intentionally set it up that way. Um, to, to make sure that folks can feel safe to share and to engage and to, and to be vulnerable. Lauren, she can say what she want to say about it. Yes. That's, yes. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah, and Amanda, you said something about the, uh, the importance of having other people affirm you as well, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going through all sorts of things at the moment. We're just like up and down and all over the place. And I think that um, having the community has been the number one thing that has gotten me through. But I also think that in terms of like boundaries, before I left for maternity leave, I was pushing my boundaries in, in ways that um, kind of take me, like I'm very, um, I don't even know what the word, like I'm just gonna tell you how it is, and that's how I am. And I was constantly being told, but you have to step back, you have to step back, you can't be like that. And so, in an attempt to step back, I was pushing boundaries that just were causing me, like my emotional, my emotional safety and all of that to be really triggered and pushed and it was draining. And so I went on maternity leave and, and I was like, you know what, I'm not doing that anymore. And I'm like, if you have a problem with what I'm saying, then I don't know what to tell you, you're gonna have to figure it out because it's not my job to figure it out for you. And so it was like going back and having to, set the boundaries of like this this I'm okay with doing like you know I don't maybe need to say like you're the most racist person on the planet but I could say something else you know so it was just those were boundaries but also community definitely that's been my saving grace currently that's yeah yeah um I struggled with the idea of safety because I know what it is to not feel safe. Uh, and so I have also adopted the idea that not only do we need to create safe spaces, but brave spaces. And for the work that we do, especially as a community organizer and even in pastoral care, um, you gotta you gotta be brave sometimes. Like, so it, let me add one more. Safe brave and sacred, those three. Recognizing that you created a safe space, but you also need people to be brave in that space. And then to recognize the sacred moment of, of those of, that that space entails, right? So when I was training in Tennessee, um, I had a, a young organizer who was coming into organizing. I was doing a one-to-one -one, uh, session with him kind of as an example before the class, and people were getting up and walking out. And he was sharing how he was bullied by a white, a white parent at his former school, and he was in a private school, and how the guy came and threw him up against the locker, one of the kid's parents, a white man. And as he was sharing this, people got up and walked out the room. And I lost it. And I said to him, this is this is messy. 
this moment is sacred because it took some bravery for him to share that moment. And so I think that in creating safe spaces for the work that we do, we have to also remember that we got to leave room for people to be brave enough to share their stories and for us to be brave enough to sit in the tension of it, right? And then the sacredness of it. Like the work we do is sacred for me. Like when I go and I sit in front of a, a pastor or a church member to sit with a one-on-one -on -one to get them to engage in this work of, of building a, a, a community that how God looks, I look at it as a sacred work, that God is already there. Uh, and it changes, you know, I gotta, I, you know, I had to come to the understanding that it's those three things. Because if I don't have, if I'm not brave enough to ask that hard question, and live in the tension of asking that hard question. You know, safety for some people means I never push on you. You know, so we've kind of diluted that idea of safety. But well, don't say anything that's going to cause me trouble. And what I'm saying is, is that when you add bravery in there, you're willing, you make it safe, but then you're willing to be brave enough to sit in the tension and the pain that comes along with it. And then you recognize that, that God is there. And that makes it sacred and holy ground. Amen. Thank you so much. I am thinking about what uh, Dr. Tracy West just opened up for us in conversation, the idea of denial and its role in either obstructing people towards liberation or when you look at it in the face, um, actually opening up space for that. And it seems to me those three things that you mentioned, you know, about safety with bravery and sacredness, um, all of that has to do with whether or not you're going to deny the communal sins at the intersections of race and sexuality, or if you're willing to look at them head on and confront them. So thank you so much for being brave and sitting in the sacred space with me. Uh, thank you to Eden Theological Seminary for sponsoring this episode. Yes, it's an episode. <laughs> Eden Seminary is preparing leaders for the progressive Christian movement, and all of that depends on whether they're willing to be brave in the sacred space. And you can learn more about them at eden.edu. Thank you for listening to the Who Raised You podcast, a storytelling project brought to you by the Who Raised You Listening Collective, featuring media by artists of color in the St. Louis region. To support us, rate and review Who Raised You podcast on every platform. Visit whoraisedyoupodcast.com to book us for speaking and consulting on arts and storytelling projects. While you're on whoraisedyoupodcast.com, donate to support the Who Raised You Listening Collective. Put groceries on our table. We are the 2018 to 2019 Startup Competition winners brought to you by your friends at the PNC Foundation and Arts and Education Council of St. Louis. They gave us an office! for this year, podcasting from the Centene Center for the Arts. If you'd like to sponsor us and have us share your products and services with our audience, let's talk about it. Email us at whoraisedyoupodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to partner with you and share your story. Connect with us on social media. Like Who Raised You Podcast on Facebook. Tweet us at Who Raised You Pod on Twitter. Slide into our DMs at Who Raised You on the Gram. On the Gram. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Say hi. <laughs>